gentlemen. Uh... Can I please have your attention? Dear listeners, this is Jonah Goldberg, host of the Remnant Podcast, brought to you by The Dispatch and Dispatch Media. Uh, very excited uh, for another first-time guest. Uh, they seem to sort of like uh, buses in, in in New York City. They send a crowd up into bunches, the new guests. Um, and so uh, today we have a frequent contributor to The Dispatch, a professor at Georgetown University, uh, Paul Miller. Uh, Paul, welcome to the disp- to the remnant. <laughs> I, I, it's g- g- great to be on the show, and I'd be welcome on uh, either podcast. I love them both. <laughs> <laughs> um, and you are a professor of international relations, a professor of the practice of international affairs in in the School of Foreign Service. There. Um. So, just so listeners know, we probably should have done this in person because I'm like twenty minutes from where you are. Um. But all that being said. Why don't we just sort of start sort of as a level setting thing? Um, I try not to, I don't, I don't want to make this too dated too quickly because events are moving so fast, but you know, it, we're recording early Monday morning, right, Tuesday morning. What do you, how do you see the, the big picture right now vis-a-vis Ukraine, Russia, the changes in Europe? Well, that's a big question. Um, and, and you're right to say events are moving fast. Uh, so I can give you the best rundown that I understand after having, kind of grazed the headlines this morning. But by the time people listen to this, things might have changed quite a bit. Um, you know, the, for the first five, six days of the war now, the the big narrative is that, like, it's not gone the way Russia expected. The Ukrainians have put up more of a fight. Uh, and Russia seems to have some egg on its face. I think there's a lot of truth to that narrative. Uh, and I can kind of give you a rundown of the mistakes I think they made. But I do want to be a little bit cautious. I think that... Uh, Russia hasn't hasn't shown its full hand. It's got a lot more it can do. It didn't invade with its full force. The Russian Air Force is still on the ground. They haven't really joined the fight much. Uh, they've taken the last couple of days as a kind of an operational pause. And knowing how Russia fought a war in Chechnya just 10 years ago, I'm really afraid we're about to see uh, Russia kind of turn up the volume, turn up the heat, and this war could get a lot uglier very quickly. So I don't want to let the early optimism be too uh, deceiving. Um, I do think things could get um, get get ugly. Yeah, I mean, it's it's this is something on my various text threads and Slack channels with colleagues, and both at AI and at um, Dispatch, we talk about a lot. You know, the the problem it seems to me is that two things can be simultaneously true: is that things are going much worse for Russia than Russia anticipated, and that's not necessarily a good thing. <laughs> right it's sort of like uh in the movie heat you know or in, in any heist movie where some hothead kills a guard w- against the plan and then all of a sudden they realize oh you got to kill all the guards because you know whatever the thing it seems to me that the until you know the fog of war is listed and the, people like you get to dive into the you know the the facts in a more granular way um it seems pretty obvious to me that this hasn't gone the way they planned. Why would you plan for it to go this way? And the thing that's a little more speculative is they never really had a plan B if their expectations for plan A went south, right? No one seemed to say to Putin, hey, what if they actually show really stiff resistance? Or um, what if we can't take Kiev in a day? Or what if 
Zelensky turns out to be this sort of shocking East European George Washington type. Um, and that's a huge problem. The, those are the kind of questions you, and I teach a class on strategy. So all my students listening, uh, listen up now. Uh, <laughs> those are the kind of questions you ask. You, what you have to ask is what if I'm wrong? What if all these initial assumptions prove to be wrong? But it's really hard to ask those questions to a dictator who could kill you, right? right. You, you don't want to say to Putin, hey, Putin, you know, I get it that you think the Eastern Ukrainians aren't going to put up a fight. You think the government will collapse in two days and you think you can take the, the airport and catalyze the collapse of the regime. But what if you're wrong about that? And by the way, he did prove to be wrong about all those things. And, and so that's why they've taken this kind of operational pause. They've, uh, you know, the fighting has been a little bit low level the last few days, but, uh, I, you know, that might change here real soon. It's hard to ask those questions of a regime like this. Um, and, and I, I think you're seeing the fruit of their kind of poor strategic planning. Where do you come down on this whole uh, Putin's changed, Putin's gone crazy versus this is the Putin we always saw and he, we've just incentivized him to lean into his worst self? Um, do you think there's a hard – I'm kind of a both-and guy rather than an either-or guy, but I'm curious where you come down on that. So I don't think he's crazy. Um, I think that he's evolved uh, to be his truest self. Um, you know, this is a KGB guy who in 2005 changed the Russian national anthem to adopt the tune of the old Soviet anthem, right? That's a guy with a lot of historical nostalgia mm -hmm. in, in his brain in his heart, right? He really yearns for that sort of vision of Russian arms and glory. Um, I think he's been constrained early on. He was new in power early on. He was still kind of consolidating himself. And Russia was a lot freer back then. Okay, now, 20 years on, realize that Putin is just about the longest serving head of state of any major country in the world. So he thinks of himself as an elder statesman, also an elder statesman who's been disrespected and ignored and treated with a lack of seriousness for most of his tenure in power. He's always had this vision of a greater Russia in his head. Uh, and now he feels like he can act on it. Because you look at what he's done in, in previous military interventions in uh, in, in Crimea in 2014 and Syria in 2015 and Georgia in 2008. I'll throw in the cyber attack on Estonia in 2007 in Chechnya before that. He gets away with it. He wins in every one of these cases. He's, he's really gotten what he wants and he's not paid a really huge cost. So now we're 20 plus years on. He thinks, Hey, look, I've got a winning streak. I'm the elder statesman. Nobody respects me. I need to do this now to cement my legacy. I don't think that's crazy. I don't, that's not insanity, but it is a, evolution of someone who's grown into this role and grown calcified in his beliefs. And he's got nobody telling him no. Yeah. So one of, one of the points that Leon Aaron made when he was um, last on here is that uh, there are only about four guys that Putin really trusts and they're all his KGB buddies from, yeah. <laughs> from East Germany. And like when they uh, decided to take Crimea the last time, I think Lavrov wasn't in the room, right? I mean, Lavrov may seem super important to the West, because that's the guy we see all the time, and we think of him as the Secretary of State or whatever the equivalent is. But it turns out that he's 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 been in a bunk. He he's self bunkered himself for a long time now. Yeah, it's it's almost comic. These photos of him at a really long conference table. It's a it, who knows why he does it, but it's a good uh, kind of meme that captures his isolation, right? Even isolation from his own advisors. So do you think, because there's a speculation that's, that's COVID paranoia, um, I mean, do you have a theory about it? 
I, I've heard COVID paranoia or even assassination paranoia. I have no idea, I, but it's pretty funny. Because <laughs> it's not, you know, it's not the, um, you know, the Ceausescu's had all this weird architecture that made normal citizens feel, feel really small, like the steps to the palace were slightly too large for normal legs to actually climb stairs normally. And it was supposed to be this sort of brutalist way of minimizing human beings. You know, it's like the classic in job negotiations where you have a very tall chair and you give someone like a beanbag chair so they're on the floor. It's not quite that, but it does feel kind of like, you know, this is as close to the great and powerful Oz as I'm going to allow you to get. Right. Uh, and and it, in some, I think it's backfired, right? Even just a week or two ago when he was meeting with um, the French president, it it maybe still looked a little bit intimidating, but if you look at it today, it looks he looks small. I think he looks petty uh, to try to pull off those tactics when his military is kind of seems stalled out on the on the battlefield. So I mean, the reason so the reason why I asked about the has Putin gone nuts thing is it kind of segues into a, a broader question. Um, I am a longtime skeptic, critic. Uh, exasperated uh, raconteur uh, with the whole idea of foreign policy realism, all in favor of being realistic, which I think is an important distinction that the realists often like to blur. Um, my standard line is that a foreign policy realist is an ideologue who's lost an argument um, because they tend to they tend to think everybody else is an ideologue. And they say, if you only had listened to me where I was talking about reality, everything would be fine, but instead you impose your weird ideological notions on foreign policy, which you cannot do. And I do think there's a great danger of imposing your ideological notions on foreign policy, but that's true of everybody. And it's something that it's why, you know, Putin's in pro has a problem. He didn't have the 10th man the way the Israelis kind of do to question everything and say, what if this is all wrong? What do you think, you know, of, of all these foreign policy debates, which, you know, are, low simmering for years and every now and then come into full public view because of something like this. What do you think about the current, what do you think the current moment says about these sorts of things? And, and like what foreign policy school such as it is, would you consider yourself part of? Uh, you're, you're pushing on maybe one of my hobby horses here, which is to rag on the realists. <laughs> I know that's uh, why I, one of the reasons I wanted you on. <laughs> yeah. Um, I, I realism it cloaks itself with this language. It's a biased framing device. Like we're the realistic ones. Um, and we, uh, the way I think I, you can uh, define academic foreign policy realism is, um, principled opposition to moral aspiration in politics. They, they think it's just intrinsically wrong to aspire to some better vision of the world. Uh, of course, they themselves are ideological. Realism is an ideology, and so it's not anti-ideological the way they think it is. Uh, it is rather the ideology of self-justifying state power, which is why autocrats like Putin love realism, right? His his Ministry of Foreign Affairs just tweeted out an article written by an American realist yesterday um, right. saying, this is all the West's fault. NATO expansion is the reason we're doing this. They're using realists as kind of wartime propaganda, uh, which should maybe cause us to rethink some things. So yeah, I'm not a fan of academic realism. Yes, we should be prudent. We, we should be cautious. We should be careful in our foreign policy. If that's all you mean by realism, then, then call me a realist. But, but academic realism has a different meaning to it. it. You know, what foreign policy school am I? I wrote a book, uh, the subtitle of which was A Conservative Internationalist Grand Strategy. That was my second book, American Power and Liberal Order. And that's a label that I didn't make up. Somebody else did, a guy named Henry Now at uh, George Washington did. 
and Henry was a Reagan administration official. I like the label of conservative internationalism because uh, I am definitely an internationalist. We can't isolate ourselves from the world. We should be deeply engaged. I believe in American leadership. Um, And I think that democracy around the world matters. Like our security is improved when other countries share our values. That's just absolutely true. But as opposed to the liberal internationalists, like Woodrow Wilson, uh, you know, insert the, the War of the Worlds music here. Right? <laughs> uh, you know, liberal, uh, Wilson and, and, and Jimmy Carter and maybe Bill Clinton, I think there's a real naivete, even a utopianism in how they approach the world. They think that you can achieve a better world by talking about it and by building institutions and signing treaties and pieces of paper. And that's not how you build a world. Uh, it does take some hard power. It does take some some brass knuckles, right? So you build a internationalist world with the sinews of hard power and American leadership. Uh, and th- that's where the conservative part of conservative internationalism comes in. It's really, a, I think, a kind of a Reagan-esque foreign policy that understands the importance of American you know, might, but also American ideals. You put these things together, uh, both, both power and idealism. And that's, uh, that's, a, that's not unique to Reagan. It's, some people will call it neoconservative, and no, it's not. They're, they're not the only ones who believed in this combination. This goes back to McKinley. It goes back to Lincoln. Uh, so that, there's where I'd sit. For the record, calling it, I understand that neoconservative has become sort of a killing word in the, uh, and certainly in academic circles and, and, and elsewhere it's, you know, it's, it's an anathematizing word, but, um, like the neoconservatism of, of Gene Kirkpatrick and Scoop Jackson, there's nothing at all wrong or sinister or anti-democratic or warmongering about any of that stuff. Right. It's just one of these words, you know, sort of like fascist that you use to shut down a conversation. Um, and as someone who's still going to hold a candle to the argument that neoconservatism was not in its origins a foreign policy doctrine at all, that's the second wave neoconservatism. I get very frustrated by a lot of people who are so often in error, but never in doubt about what they know and don't know about you know, neoconservatism. Um, okay. So let's start here. What do you think of how Joe Biden has done so far on this? And you can grade them in stages, right? I mean, cause there are different stages to this thing if you want. Yeah. So if you want to limit the question to just the Ukraine stuff, mm-hmm. uh, and just the last week, he, he's done pretty good. Mm-hmm. Um, I think that he's been a little bit, uh, the, the world responded to Russia's invasion with fairly unprecedented pushback, um, and a coordinated campaign of sanctions. And I think the Biden administration is it, with that and in it and helping coordinate it. And I think that's a good thing. Um, and just part of the invasion, the Biden administration was doing something really interesting where they would share real time intelligence about what Russia was thinking. And I think it helped, uh, at, uh, kind of steal Russia's thunder and preempt their propaganda campaign. So Biden would say, watch out, Russia's about to engineer a false flag operation as a pretext for war, which kind of stole Putin's ability to do that. Mm-hmm. And I think that was a pretty effective way of playing the uh, diplomacy in the days leading up to the war. Okay, so there's the good things I can say about it. But you zoom out and the Obama approach to Russia, uh, you know, during which Biden was vice president, was qu- quite poor. Uh, the response to the Crimean invasion involved some sanctions, but not a lot. It, the, the Crimean, the Ukrainian war started in 2014. It didn't start last week. It started in 2014. 
And it started under Obama's watch. And I think that our response then was very lackluster, particularly when you compare it to what happened over the last week, last couple of days. Um, that was the opportunity we had to prevent the war from escalating into what we've seen this week. And we completely blew it. And I think the kind of Obama-Biden approach is, is to blame for that by not responding to Russia with any kind of muscular response. President Obama did send some aid to Ukraine, but it was, it was non-lethal aid. And, and mm -hmm. President Trump reversed that. And I think that was the right call. And that's almost the only thing you'll ever hear me say good about President Trump. Um, and, and Biden did continue that when he came into office. And that was a good thing. When Russia looks at the United States, when Russia looks at our record, when he, when he looks at Biden, what does he think of? He thinks of the withdrawal from Afghanistan. I think he still thinks of Obama's red line in Syria that you know, we, we did not enforce. If you recall, you know, Obama said there's a red line on chemical weapons. We won't allow that to happen. Assad used chemical weapons. We did nothing in response. Congress said we're not going to drop bombs. Then Russia stepped in and said, you know what? We'll help take care of this problem. And this was Putin's effort to really assert leadership on the world stage. Uh, I think since then, Putin has felt very emboldened. And um, the timing of this invasion during the Biden presidency, I think, is not an accident. I think he believed that Biden would not uh, push back very hard. I saw, it's funny because I, I just wrote my L.A. Times column sort of about this. And I agree with you entirely um, that, uh, you know, the way I the way I framed it is it's sort of like how Hemingway describes going bankrupt. Um, it's gradual and then sudden. Right. Um, there are preludes, you know, to this um, uh, going back, you can argue to the Bush administration, but certainly to the Obama administration. And, um, but, and I'm not saying that I like the fecklessness and the inconsistency and, and, and all that kind of stuff of the last t decade or so, but couldn't you also make an argument that there's an upside to it insofar as, um, it's sort of a, it's, it's sort of negative credit. I don't know if that's a real word or something, but for historians, but in the sense that starting with Obama straight through Biden's withdrawal of uh, from Afghanistan, including Trump's ridiculous attacks on NATO, uh, talking about pulling out of South Korea, refusing to respond in any serious way to Russian attacks on American troops, <laughs> American troops in, in Syria, you go down a very long list, you know, um, our allies saw this. And for the first time in living memory, essentially the, 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 almost universal assumption of America's leadership role and security commitments and assurances could no longer be considered a given. It's now a variable, right? It's now something that we have to change our calculations because crap, look, I mean, look, they let Russia take Crimea. Obama didn't enforce the red line. Um, Biden yanked out of Afghanistan without even consulting us. And of course, Trump talked about like getting out of NATO entirely. Something's going on. Something's in the water over in America. And, and so the Ukrainian invasion, you know, a week ago is kind of the thing that lit that kindling for the, you know, and so you have like, so my understanding is the, the Olaf Schultz speech where he announced the 2% commitment to NATO and the, the, um, lethal aid and all of these things. He didn't once mention the United States of America in the entire speech. It was all Europe and world order and all of that kind of thing, which 
would have been almost inconceivable even five years ago or, you know, five weeks ago. And, and so in some ways, can't you say that the, the stepping up of our allies to do, get closer to doing the right thing now is in part because we've dropped the ball. So our absence from the world stage has allowed others to step in, right? Um, well, let's let's kind of replay the tape. What did Germany actually do over the last, not two days, but the last, you know, 10, 15 years? Um, yeah, we did. The United States is less reliable. Uh, Angela Merkel said, she said it on Memorial Day of 2017. It's remarkable she said it on our holiday to celebrate World War II dead. She said the, Ameri- yeah, the United States is not reliable anymore. The Europeans have to look to their own security. Uh, and that was in 17, so five years ago. Well, what has Germany done in those years? It it tilted towards Russia, right? It allowed itself to be economically entangled with Russia. And it was essentially a veto within NATO and within the EU to take any tougher measures against Russia. That's the kind of thing that the Europeans, that the Germans chose to do absent American leadership up until this week. Now, you're, you're right that we've seen a, just an unbelievable revolution in German foreign policy in the last 48, 72 hours. And if I could bang on the table again and, and yell at the microphone, I would do it. I want the listeners to understand how just shocking, how stunning this last weekend was in German politics uh, to, to announce that we're going to spend more than 2% on defense, which America has been demanding for eight decades. And we're going to send weapons to another country to help fight a war, which up until recently, Ger- Germany had never done that. Um, and we're going to cut off Nord Stream 2. And we're going to join in kicking Russia out of SWIFT um, and, and other sanctions. It's just un- unbelievable. This is a tectonic shift in European politics. And by the way, if anything the world has done has gotten Putin's attention, I think it was the German chancellor announcing an increase in the German defense budget. Yeah. Now, Russia, Russia does not fear Europe, but Russia does fear Germany. Um, so what did it take for that to happen? It took the invasion of Ukraine. Uh, I'm, I'm not sure that that was a response to an absence of American leadership. We, Again, Biden has been leading over the last couple of weeks. And Germany joined on with a global campaign of pushback against Russia. I don't see that as a response to an absence of American leadership, but rather acting within and through uh, the United States and our and our coalition. Yeah, I, I guess I mean I agree with that. I mean, obviously, the, what's actually happening in Ukraine is the primary driver of events. But if you've been thinking for the last five, eight years, oh crap, America's just not in the game the way it once was, and we can't kind of do the free rider thing that we once did um, as an abstract or theoretical matter. And then you see, oh, it's not actually abstract or theoretical anymore. You know, Russia's invading Ukraine. And then you've got this Zelensky guy who probably dismissed, who all of a sudden is rousing your people against your, you know, your government's policies. I mean, I, I think the most interesting turnaround was actually the way the German government freaked out when their offer of 5,000 helmets was meted with such scorn from not just the world, but like from their own citizenry, you know? And, um, and so again, I, I, I'm not saying, yay, this was a great story and, and kudos to Obama and Trump and Biden for retreating. Cause I think they're real costs to not being, not, not being the one, you know, setting the pace, setting the tone, setting the priorities, because we're the biggest kid on the, on the block kind of thing and letting, you know, there's, you know, this stuff better than I do, but I believe there is some data 
in the historical um, research to show that German rearmament can sometimes go awry. <laughs> um, so anyway, I, I'm just saying it's it's to me it's it's it it kind of proves a certain argument that says you need to actually give people um, the space to rise to the leadership that is required of them and sometimes and countries and sometimes they actually do it and um it just i find it just a such a shocking turnaround in such a quick period of time yeah no i look i agree with you and i'm i'm very heartened by what i've seen uh, by the europeans by the whole world over the last couple of days uh i'll just note that it's again it's a very different tack than germany took just a few years ago when it was sort of tilting towards russia um one of the more interesting thing you mentioned the public opinion in germany and there've been sort of public you know protests and rallies in favor of ukraine that's again shocking to me if you look at public opinion polls in germany just a couple of years ago when people were asked you know should we go to war to defend a nato ally like latvia like a majority said no and by the way they said no in america too and that was for a nato ally not for ukraine uh so i'm i'm surprised by the sudden turnabout in public opinion where people are saying we need to do more to help out the Ukrainians who aren't a NATO ally. Um, and so, some of the stuff is getting even more hawkish, too hawkish for, for my taste. You know, and I've seen calls on Twitter for like regime change in Russia. And I'm thinking that's not, we don't need to have that conversation right now. That's pretty dangerous. Um, I feel the same way about the no-fly zone stuff. I very much would like a no-fly zone, but there are a lot of people who seem to think it's, you declare no-fly zone the way Michael Scott declares bankruptcy in the office. You just say it. <laughs> I declare a no-fly zone, and all of a sudden Russian jets can't fly. American jets or NATO jets would have to enforce a no-fly zone, and that's that's a shooting war with with Russia, which I'm I'd like to hold off on for the time being. You know, yeah, no, no-fly no-fly zone is a declaration of war. It's an act of war, and and so we can't we can't do that. There's no practicable means for us to have a no-fly zone and avoid World War Three. So I, I agree, we should not take that step. So, you know, if 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 one of your hobby horses is the realists, you know, one, one of my many, I'm, I have a whole herd of hobby horses to be honest, but, um, uh, one of my hobby horses is the sort of nationalist conservatives, you know, broadly defined, including a bunch of people who have kind of, uh, these very strange man crushes on Vladimir Putin. Um, and so getting to your point about the sudden change in public opinion, I don't, I'm, I'm, by no means an expert on German public opinion. I know a little bit more about American public opinion. And I, um, I have always been skeptical about these isolation, quote unquote, isolationist sentiments in America that, you know, they, that the, the forces of restraint or retrenchment or whatever the label of the day is advocate, they cite them at certain points in our law in, in, in American affairs, like when we're exhausted by a war we've been in for a long time. And they say, see, the American people are against this stuff. American people tend to be against a lot of things in the abstract. And then all of a sudden, when they see something really horrible, um, like ISIS beheading some Americans or um, Russia invading a country and lying about it, um, they're like, it's go time. You know, I mean, this is the part of the Andrew, and this is this is one of the, the the things that really frustrates me is we've spent like two years, five years listening to a lot of these nationalist guys, these pro-Trump guys talking about the the spirit of Andrew Jackson in American politics, you know, which is like 
you know, if if you start a fight, we're going to finish it. Uh, the authentic voice of the blood and soil American people, yada, yada, yada. And there has there's barely been a right leaning populist protest from truckers in Canada to anti mask stuff that they haven't celebrated and egged on and cheered. And then all of a sudden, when the actual spirit of sort of Andrew Jackson type of America, which is, you know, you can't do that to our pledges. Only we can do that to our pledges. They go, they're like, whoa, whoa, whoa. everyone needs to calm down. There are two sides to every story. You know, Putin's not a bad, not the bad guy. The corporate media is telling you it is. And it seems to me, if you look at the polling now in America about anti-Russian sentiment, pro-Ukraine sentiment, uh, how Biden, how we, what we should do vis-a-vis Ukraine. Not a lot of people want to go to war, but a lot of people are really pissed at Russia. A lot of people want to help Ukraine any way we can. And it seems to me that the, the whole, sort of the entire premise of a lot of the sort of nationalist conservative guys has just sort of evaporated in, in about a week. And I'm here for it. There's a reason for the man crush on Putin. And, the re- and so I don't think their premises have evaporated. It's a different set of premises. Uh, and and th- thank you for raising this because this gets on another one of my hobby horses. And in fact, my next book, which is about nationalism, right? They see in Putin a fellow nationalist and they see a kindred spirit uh, of somebody who thinks about world order and national identity and state responsibilities in, in a very similar way. Remember that Putin, he does have an ideology. He's not just a blank slate authoritarian. There is an ideology to Russia's uh, autocratic government. Um, and it is, an, it is a Russian nationalist view of the world. And Russian nationalism is entwined with uh, Orthodox Christianity. And that's why the patriarch of Moscow has come out essentially endorsing the war. They have a version in their country, a version of Christian nationalism that has, um, they're presenting themselves. Putin is presenting himself as the champion of a kind of a global cons- capital C conservatism, blood, blood soil thrown an altar kind of conservatism. Uh, he talks about the decadent West and how we need to uphold moral values. Um, every anything that he can pick on in America that looks weird and and the same way our American post liberal right complains about the woke left, Putin does the same thing, and Putin presents himself as this champion of this other kind of capital C conservatism, and so that's why there's this kinship between the post liberal right and and Putin. They like the idea of discrete, hard cultural boundaries around nations that you can enforce with public policy. Uh, and, and if Putin's going to stand up for those global values of Christian civilization, they're all for it. Same, this was the same thing with Viktor Orban before the invasion of Ukraine. They love Orban, right? And why? Because Orban presents himself as this champion of Christian values. Uh, uh, it's written into his new constitution. Uh, they think the truly Christian thing is to announce yourself Christian, right? Proclaim yourself Christian, like declaring bankruptcy, right? We're Christian and we're going to enforce it. Um, and that's, that's more important to them than actually governing in a just, humane, uh, open way. Okay, obviously, I agree with all that. Um, I do think that there's a profound analytical flaw in, you know, I, I'm fairly obsessed with nationalism stuff and and my basic attitude towards a lot of people who talk about nationalism um starting with your Mazzoni is you keep using that word you know it's, i get very vizzini on them um but uh um you know in part because 
part of the bait and switch that they use is, 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 is it's a sort of a Mont and Bailey thing, right? Is like rah rah nationalism and the most aggressive definition possible. And then when you push back, they say, "Well, I believe in the Westphalian nation, system of nation states, and I don't like it." Well, who who doesn't? I mean, I'm sure you do, right? You know, I mean, that doesn't mean you can't believe in international organizations too, to some extent. But like, um, anyway, the but there's a the 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 disconnect that drives me the most um per, makes me the most perplexed or vexed is so putin's a nationalist he's standing up for russia's ideal of a nation well zelensky's a nationalist too right i mean and and you, if if anything ukraine has proved that it is a nation right uh, like you don't you know kill yourself blowing up a bridge to keep russian tanks out for you know unless you actually believe you're doing it for your nation you don't you know do all these things that normal ukrainians are doing with molotov cocktails and lying down in front of tanks if if you don't have a conception of nationhood and the whole scheme of the hazoni natcon crowd is out the borders are sacrosanct national sovereignty is sacrosanct it's more important than un issues and eu this and all the rest and here you have Putin with tanks going across uh, a supposedly sacred border, and they're like, "Well, that's not really a sacred border, and um, and it's not really sovereignty because there are Russian speakers in this place, even though the Russian speakers mostly want to be Ukrainians now." And it 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 it, it reveals itself as a kind of power worship without a lot of ser- rigorous intellectual content to it. Yeah, and it gets to the heart of Putin's case for war. Right, he has claimed that Ukraine is not a true nation that it has actually always been part of the Russian nation because of the birthplace of Slavic Christianity and the, the, the baptism of Rus in 1088, right? And uh, therefore, it's been a crime to separate uh, Kiev from the rest of Russia. He defines the borders of the Russian nation as including essentially all of Slavic Christianity. Therefore, the Russian Federation, the homeland of, of this civilization, should have the right to expand and include all of these people's into its borders. What's most remarkable, the most important refutation of that is the fighting in Kharkiv right now in the northeast of Ukraine. That is a Russian city. It's a Russian speaking city. The people of Kharkiv are mostly ethnic Russian or Russian speakers, and they have put up an incredible resistance to the Russian army. That right there is a refutation of Putin's case for war. They disagree with Putin's characterization of the Russian nation. They think of themselves as Ukrainians as proven by their fight over the past week. And it's vital for Putin to crush that and uh, level the city, which is why he used cluster munitions there yesterday, uh, so that he can go back to claiming that it, you know, you're all part of Mother Russia. When you insist on making cultural borders overlap exactly with political borders, you can only make that happen by force. And that's why all nationalism is intrinsically illiberal and usually violent. There's no other way of forcing culture into your preferred template unless you do it coercively, because culture is naturally fluid. Uh, the borders are fuzzy. They overlap. They change. Uh, they contract. They expand. And so using culture as the basis for political order, which is what nationalism is, is impossible. I, I, I will push back just because I, and this is a very small pushback, but um, but because I've had so many of these arguments with people um, for so long now, uh, I've always made a certain amount of concession that a little nationalism is okay, right? It to me, it's the analogy I always use. I use in my book is is it's like salt. No salt ruin. Without salt, a meal is flavorless. 
a little a pinch of salt brings out the flavors of the meal and ties everything together. Too much salt ruins it. Way too much salt is poisonous. Um, Thanksgiving, I would argue, and I've argued many times on this podcast, is the most nationalistic holiday in America. It predates the founding. It's about ties to God and the grant and the soil and providence and all of these kinds of things. And it's wonderful and it's harmless, you know, and uh, where you and that is a, and, and, and declaring a day of national Thanksgiving is is really not it's not the limit of what I'm what I'm willing to do in terms of public policy in the name of sort of nationalistic sentiment, but it's perfectly safe. The problem, as you, I, other than that, I, I agree with you entirely that that the more you lean into the conception of nationalism, the more illiberal it has to become because of the the, the whole logic of it um, erases the legitimacy of disagreements with what the nation's true will is. And that's how it plays out everywhere. Yeah. And, and, and that's the source of culture war is when you try to make the government in charge of regulating your culture, you incentivize people to try to take over the government and, and impose their cultural template. Okay. You made a good point. We do need something that ties us together and it's fine and innocuous and harmless to have some principle that says we are us and we are not them. That's not, intri- that's not bad. In fact, we need it. That's necessary. Um, you said that's a little bit of national, a little bit of salt. I just choose to call it patriotism. I know that's just a definitional thing, but here's where I think the content of that is. Number one, of course, the creed, the constitution declaration, we have to, you're not fully American if you reject the principles of the creed, right? But number two, it's our history, right? Things like Thanksgiving. It's not just Thanksgiving. It's things, it's the entire American story mm-hmm. of who we were, what we have overcome and um, what story we are participating in today. And I, I think it's fair to say that you're not fully American if you just ignore or reject the story and say it's irredeemably bad. I want nothing to do with it. All right. C.S. Lewis has this phrase where he says you have to have a certain attitude towards your the, the heroes of your past. You have to have a, a veneration. You say in your book, gratitude, right? We have to be grateful for the inherited forms of human life that we've been inducted into through the institutions that we've grown up under. And that means you have to know American history. You have to, in some sense, accept that it is your story and that you have a stewardship responsibility to see yourself as a participant, to step into that history and carry it forward to the next chapter. I think that that's what it means to be an American. It has nothing to do with shared ethnicity, language, religion, history, um, heritage, whatever that word means. Uh, it's, it's a shared story. Uh, and that shared story is what brings us together. Putin thinks it's shared language, shared religion, shared land, that's a very old world conception of national identity. That's nationalism. It's illiberal. It's wrong. The kind of thing that I think you and I are talking about is more that civic understanding rooted in our story. It's the story of us tri- striving to fulfill the promise of our creed. Yeah. I, I mean, clearly I, I can, I can just tell that you're in the weeds writing a book about nationalism because <laughs> it, 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 it is such a f- frustratingly obvious yet slippery thing to talk about. Because, like my uh, my dear friends Ramesh Paneru and Rich Lowry, they wrote a piece, you know, a case for nationalism for National Review a few years ago, and there's an enormous amount of stuff I agree with in there. In part because I think they use the word nationalism to mean patriotism, and um, and where where they don't, they will say as a lot of the and and I don't think Ramesh and Rich are part of the the NatCon thing. They're not, but. You know, what a lot of the sort of na- self-proclaimed nationalist guys do will say, who are intellectually honest, 
is they will slip in phrases like 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 Richard Ramesh did, where they'll say benign nationalism, right? Which basically just means good nationalism, which basically means all the stuff, all the good stuff that nationalism brings, we're in favor of. Well, so's everybody else, you know, <laughs> and. And, uh, but at least it acknowledges that there are bad forms of, of, of nationalism where I kind of come down on this and I go back and forth and we should probably have a beer and talk about this more because I've spent a lot of time on, on thinking about this crap, um, is that part of the definition of patriotism that I have in my head, and I agree with you about the story thing, that's I, entirely, but part of the definition I have about patriotism is that Patriotism in the U.S. is, first of all, creedal, right? It's about a bunch of texts. And, um, but when push comes to shove, it's the emphasis in the American political tradition of patriotism is the hero is the individual who stands up to the crowd, right? You're not going to lynch this guy today. Um, uh, you know the guy, the Nor- the guy in the Norman Rockwell painting who stands up and and speaks his mind. Uh, everything from Mister Smith goes to Washington to the man who shot Liberty Valance and to basically anything else Jimmy Stewart's in. And um, the core essence of nationalism is the we, right? It's like the the nationalists are the crowd that the guy standing, you know, the Atticus Finch is standing up against, and or that Liberty Valance is standing up against, and and that's one of the things that makes that is at the core of American exceptionalism is, is that we kind of defined ourselves as a political culture as rooted around protecting the rights of individuals and not protecting the will to power of large groups. And the problem is, is that the individual thing is not natural, right? It doesn't come to a, it's very, it sounds great and it's part of our liberal culture, but like the group thing is what pings our lizard brains. And so every now and then when passions run too hot, the nationalism swamps the patriotism in a certain way, if that makes any sense. Yeah. Um, tribalism is natural. I think we're just tribal creatures and we want to stick to people who feel familiar to us. Um, think about the phrase that we often hear the national conservatives say, they talk about quote, our way of life, right? Way of life is something that we corporately exhibit. It is a shared thing not the individual thing, right? Mm-hmm. Individually, I got my own preferences and peccadilloes and tastes, uh, but the way of life is by definition, it's a tribal thing. And they want their particular way of life for their crowd to be the nationally defining way of life. Um, and I think that's a common error of the NatCons is to say, my subculture is actually the national culture and the rest of you who don't fit in, you're not true Americans unless you actually adopt our subculture. And there's a mis- they're mistaking the particular for the universalists that's where you get illiberal. All right. So I want to get back to actual foreign policy word <laughs> stuff, but, um, I, I will be re I would be remiss if I didn't ask you this question because it's rare. I get someone on here who actually, um, might have a fully formed opinion on this. And, and, and I'll say up front, I've heard very smart people argue it one way and I've heard very smart people argue it the opposite way. So I'm, but, I increasingly have come to the conclusion about Woodrow Wilson that um, this rap that he gets, this rep that he gets as this 
you know, the whole phrase of Wilsonian democracy, right? Or Wilsonian internationalism and self-determination that college kids have been taught about forever um, is misleading because Wilson's conception of self-determination or national determination was not necessarily democratic. He thought that ethnicities, nation states, societies, cultures, whatever, that were evolved or developed enough to be democratic should be allowed to be democratic. But there are all sorts of, I'm just characterizing what I think is his mode of thought, backward nationalities that are not sufficiently developed that if they want to have a dictatorship and that's their culture, so long as they're not controlled by the Habsburgs or the Russians or some other imperial power from without, they should be allowed to do that too. And, um, and that kind of thinking, I believe in, it comes up all the time in contemporary political arguments, whether or not I'm right about Wilson in the sense of, well, you know, the Iranians, this is just their culture. Who are we to judge how Iranians choose to organize their politics? And they make it, they, 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 they skip a step where they assume that this is the, the organization that they chose. Same thing with Russia. Who are we to judge how, how Russia chooses to organize politically? Well, the, the problem is that a lot of Russians didn't choose to organize this way because the guy's a freaking dictator. So anyway, am I, where do you come down on this point about, about the hate of Woodrow Wilson? And then, um, <laughs> and then we'll just take it from there. Well, you know the history stuff better than I do. Uh, I will observe about Wilson that... Uh, he wasn't the first one to say that the United States should be on the side of spreading freedom, right? He was actually copying Teddy Roosevelt and even uh, uh, McKinley. Um, McKinley. But it was freedom Roosevelt, from imperial stuff, right? It wasn't necessarily freedom from domestic tyrants in their own countries. It was freedom from the age of empires. I mean, I don't mean to interrupt, but like that's sort of part of the key point for me is that we think when he says freedom... It means our liberal democratic freedom when in fact he means self-determination for for nations qua nations. Yeah, I think I think you're right about Wilson. I, I'm trying to make a point about his continuity from the others. Let's remember that when the United States occupied Cuba under the Teddy Roosevelt administration, we oversaw four elections, right? So we actually did seem to mean, at least under Teddy Roosevelt, mm -hmm. freedom from internal tyranny as well, as from Spanish rule and also internal tyranny. That's it failed, it, you know, Cuba collapsed. But uh, then Wilson comes in and he, I think, starts to change the definition and, yes, emphasize this idea of sort of national self-determination, national freedom. And, and you're right about how today we see these arguments that some people maybe aren't fit for democracy. And it's, it's in Yoram's book. He he talks about how different nations have different paths towards different models of governance, which is the polite way of saying some people ain't fit for democracy in, in his view. Uh, and I take real issue with this argument. Um, I think it's true to say that some preconditions make democracy and human rights easier and some make it harder. Like it's easier if you're rich because everything's easier if you're rich, right? It's easier if you have high literacy. It's easier if there's no widespread political violence in your country. The real, the real question is, is it easier if you're Western, if you have some kind of European inheritance? And I think the data says no, right? I've, I've written I've, on this, I've researched on this, and there's a lot of examples of non-Western democracies around the world that exist today, places like Japan and India and South Korea and Botswana and um, pockets of democracy that existed for some period of time in the past, even in places like Syria. And democracies exist in every cultural block in the world today. I know that some people are thinking right now, 
that's because of European imperialism. And my answer is, no, it's not. It might be about British imperialism, mm -hmm. but there's no evidence at all that French imperialism or Dutch imperialism ever resulted in democracy anywhere. Right. If there's an imperial connection, it's purely Anglo-American. But even then, there's lots of examples of, of non-British colonies that found their own way to democracy decades and centuries after the British left. Here's my favorite story. Country of Malawi. I think it was a former French colony. 1992, 93, as democracy is sweeping Eastern Europe, it's sweeping, uh, also it's sweeping much of Africa and Latin America, just not so much in the headlines. And there's protests in the streets of Malawi and the president for life, the dictator, Hastings Banda, he says, okay, okay, we'll hold a referendum. And on the referendum, there's one question. Do you want me to continue on as president for life or would you like multi-party de democracy? And, and Hastings Banda forgot to rig the election. <laughs> and the Malawians actually voted in a reasonably free and fair election. And they said, we want democracy. And they did that without Western pressure, without Western intervention, no military intervention. They just plain said, we want democracy. Because you know why? People don't like being oppressed. That's not uniquely Western. Uh, it, it's not uniquely Western to not want to be oppressed, right? People actually kind of like the government leaving them alone and not oppressing them particularly women and ethnic and religious minorities the world over. They love democracy. In Afghanistan, it was the women, it was the Shia, it was the Uzbeks, the Tajiks. They love democracy. You know, who doesn't love it is the rich men of the ruling ethnic tribe. Those are the people who dislike it. So when people say, well, the Russians, you know, maybe don't want democracy. Well, yeah, the oligarchs don't. Putin doesn't. The rich Russian men in the capital cities, they don't want democracy. But you ask the Russian in the street, I bet they probably would like some form of democracy or accountable governance. Yeah, the, the, and I'm sure you know this, but like the one exception to the, it helps to be rich to have democracy, unless you're rich because of natural resources alone, right? There's that natural resource curse, which breaks that weird catalytic relationship with the rising middle class that demands its say, um, which I guess... That takes us just for a second to China. Um, where do you see China going? Is it is it, are we really looking at a at a new Cold War with China and Russia? And what do you mean by Cold War when you say Cold War? Yeah. So so that's my latest piece in the dispatch. Is the answer is yes. I do think that there's it's fair to say a new Cold War. Just as a quick side note. Um, Hong Kong and Taiwan prove that there's no co conflict between democracy and sort of Chinese culture, right? Right. Uh, just as South Korea proves that, you know, Korean culture is compatible with democracy, on and on and on. Let me start with the first Cold War and say there was nothing terribly unique about the first Cold War, except that there was only two powers and maybe the ideological dimension was a bit deeper than usual. Great powers usually treat each other this way with high suspicion rivalry, competition, and maybe gray zone quasi-war uh, where their interests clash. That's normal for how great powers interact throughout history. Cold War, not unique in that respect. So when I say there's a new Cold War, all I'm really saying is great powers are competing for power and prestige on the world stage like they always have. And we pretended that wasn't the case for the past 30 years. Let's stop pretending and acknowledge how great powers always act. It's uncomfortable for Americans because we want to believe that we can live in this almost utopia of the democratic peace, which we can among ourselves. We can live in that paradise with Europe, with Japan, with India, with South Korea, because they see the world the same way we do. They're democracies. They value human rights. But that will never be the case with 
autocratic great powers like Russia and China. I'd throw in Iran and, and North Korea as sort of authoritarian nuclear armed states uh, or, or, or near nuclear states in the case of Iran. So we have to adopt a posture of rivalry at the very least, if not outright enmity, as we are certainly with North Korea and Iran and now Russia. And that will require American diplomats to understand the logic of that kind of rivalry, competition, and enmity. In my experience, you know, I worked for the government for 10 years and I, I teach uh, in a program that trains future diplomats. There is often a kind of a functional pacifism in large sectors of the American government because they think military force is icky and ineffective. I totally get the skepticism because we just lost two wars, but that doesn't mean the military is useless or uh, ineffective for all things for all time. Let's not fall prey to recency bias and let's recognize we have to use our military as a tool of competition with the great powers. Yeah, and also just we're using our military even when it's not fighting, you know, which is like one of these things that just seems lost on a lot of people. I mean, it's a very sort of, you know, Chesterton's fence kind of thing where you have, you know, the security guard who sits in the front of the bank is doing his job when there are no bank robberies, right? Because, you know, it's, it's, he's, you know, the scarecrow is doing his job when there are no crows in the field. And this idea that it's, it's, Sort of, it's it's sort of the international analog to you know defund the police. Crime is low, so why do we need cops? You know, um, and I agree with you. It does seem like there's a tendency to think that the use of force is a sign of failure, and so therefore, if you're a diplomat and you think talking is the only solution, and then the there's the use of force, you think it reflects poorly on you, but that's not. Sometimes that's probably true, you know, but not always and, and not in every circumstance. All right. So I think everybody who is clear eyed about this, for the most part, getting back to Ukraine, thinks the worst is yet to come. And as we were sort of discussing at the beginning, you know, Putin seems not to have had a plan B if plan A didn't go right. Um, so where do you think? you know, in a month, where do you think we are with all of this? Or what are you most concerned about where we might be in a month other than nuclear cinders or that kind of thing? Right. <laughs> um, I don't think nuclear war is highly likely right now, uh, thankfully. Um, here's the two most likely scenarios. One is a happy one and one is the really bad one. Um, the happy one is maybe in just a couple of days, the oligarchs are so uh, scared of the economic pressure and losing their yachts that they uh, take Putin out by the woodshed and, and bury him in a shallow grave. Um, and, and they abruptly end the war and Ukraine wins. I think that's, that might happen. Um, the reason it might not is Putin has probably proofed himself pretty well. Uh, but I, I have to hope that there might be some disgruntled generals or intelligence staff or somebody who recognizes what a disaster this is going to be for Russia and they want to take some action. And who are eminently bribable, right? I mean, right, if you're an oligarch right. it, and you're losing $10 million an hour, telling some general, here's $20 million, take care of this. Yeah, you know, yeah. That, yeah. thinking about yeah, it. Exactly. So, so that's one scenario. I hope and pray that that happens. Um, the other scenario is that uh, no, there's no coup. Putin doubles down because I think by this point, Putin recognizes it's not just his legacy and his, that's on the line. It's his regime and probably even his life, right? Putin has to win or he's gone. He's dead. 
And so he's going to double down. War's going to get uglier. We might see something like Grozny in Kharkiv, maybe even Kiev. So Russia can claim a conventional military victory, destroy the conventional armed forces of Ukraine, control the big cities, and then the insurgency begins, right? And this turns into a replay of the Soviet-Afghan war, uh, except with NATO fun funneling weapons through Poland. Uh, that could grind on for years. It could destroy most of Ukraine. It could drain uh, Russia, Russia's economy dry. The real question is, which breaks first, the Ukrainian resistance or the Russian economy? That's, I think, the central logic of this war. We have declared global economic war on Russia as Russia has declared war on Ukraine. Who's going to win first? I don't know. I think you need a political economy expert to look at Russia's foreign reserves and its uh, oil and gas and, and all that stuff to really gauge how long they can last. Um, and then you compare that with the, the Ukrainian opposition. Yeah, so the thing, I mean, that's, that all sounds right to me, but the thing that I think is at the at the very heart of this blunder by Putin, and I do think it's a blunder, and even if he ends up winning militarily the way we're describing here, it's still a blunder. I mean, because this, this isn't what he how he wanted it to happen, and it's cost him enormous prestige and all sorts of other things. Um, so part of my theory from the beginning was Russia does not have a military doctrine for how to protect civilian lives in a serious way. But the whole logic and nature of what Putin was claiming required protecting civilian lives. If your argument is, is that the Ukrainians are, that is it a fiction to call Ukrainians Ukrainians because they are simply Russians and they're our brothers and sisters and we love them and they're being held hostage by these drug addict neo-Nazis, that doesn't give you a lot of permission to blow up apartment complexes and schools and hospitals. And um, so... Even if he wins, quote unquote, wins in the way, you know, we're describing or even something even slightly less horrific, um, a grinding insurgency with people that you're claiming are Russians um, does not, you know, he doesn't go home to a, you know, a cesarean triumph where they throw laurels at him. Um, and so I understand that winning at this point is still better than losing. But winning is not that great shakes for him politically, domestically. And he said that this is all about Donbass. And that, what are you going to say? Well, the Battle of Kiev has been won? Well, wait a second. There wasn't supposed to be a Battle of Kiev. Um, so I just think he's gotten himself into a really bad corner, theoretically, rhetorically, politically. And, and that's what scares me is, is Putin in a corner is not going to be a nice guy. Yeah, I I completely agree um, that this is a scary situation because there's not a lot of outs for Putin that allow him to keep his own life. Um, and so that's why he'll feel the logic to keep doubling down and pressing in. Uh, you're right about, uh, you know, by the logic of the war, by, by his justification for the war, he shouldn't be killing lots of civilians because he's killing his fellow Russians. They had no compunction about doing that in Chechnya because they're the non-Russian and, and they're Muslims, right? And so the Russian army had no problem just, just raising cities to the ground, killing tens of thousands of civilians. That might lead more support to scenario one, right? The, the coup or, you know, a, a mass Russian mutiny. But Putin himself, when he has to face the choice between his own life and the lives of tens of thousands of, of Ukrainians, of course he'll choose himself. He won't hesitate for any measurable amount of time. And so he'll give the orders to start turning Kharkiv into Grozny, 
the real question is, will the Russian military obey those orders? And I, I don't know the answer to that. So what does it look like if the Russian military doesn't obey those orders? I mean, like, that's, that's a hot mess, right? I mean, I, I hope they don't obey the orders. Um, I would love to think that you and I, in a similar circumstance, would not obey the orders. But that's also a lot to expect of a Russian, you know, colonel or general or something like that. I mean, what, so is, is it then just civil war that breaks out in Russia? We recall that the military, the Russian military is now more, and I think it's mostly a volunteer army, right? It used to right. be conscript based and they've transitioned over the last 20 years. That is perhaps why you're seeing the morale problems because these soldiers feel that they joined freely to serve their motherland, their country, and they don't agree with what's happening. Some of them perhaps don't agree with what's happening. That's why you might see some mutinies. I, I don't know. Um, if that happens on a mass scale in Ukraine at the front lines, maybe that will be a signal to the generals like, okay, now we have a, now it's time for us to take Putin out by the woodshed. That's again, I, that's perhaps wishful thinking on my part. Um, but I want to believe that that's what would happen, that there would be almost a reverse effect by sending back home the signal that we're just not going to fight this war. So, all right. We're about time, but just very quickly, what should America do next? Now, we're recording this before the State of the Union. It'll come out after the State of the Union, so we haven't mentioned the State of the Union. But, like, if you had your druthers, what would have Joe Biden mentioned and said he was going to do in the State of the Union last night? Yeah. I mean, put, us, put ourselves on a Cold War footing. And there's a whole lot of implications to that, uh, one of which is to make sure we make Ukraine uh, win the battle for Ukraine if we can, or make it hurt so much that it's a Pyrrhic victory for the Russians. But then there's a whole lot of other things we need to do to put ourselves on a Cold War footing. We need a pretty significant increase in our military budget. It's been on a almost unbroken three-decade decline. Uh, it's estimated to fall to just 2.7% of, of GDP within the next 10 years. And for context, the last time our defense budget was less than 3% of GDP was 1940. So we're on the path to having the smallest military footprint in, in three generations, right? Since before World War II. That needs to change if we're going to put ourselves on a serious Cold War footing. Um, I think we also need to kind of reevaluate our stance in Europe and in East Asia, uh, possibly take Sweden and Finland into NATO, uh, address democratic backsliding in Hungary and Poland and Turkey, look at the Pacific. Uh, if we're going to do a Cold War footing in the Pacific, we need to consolidate our alliance structure. We need to, I think, force a crisis with China over the South China Sea. It's just blatantly flouting international law. If we want to prevent a war over Taiwan, we should provoke the crisis before then over the islands it's building. Um, there, there's a lot of things we could do, but I think number one is recognize that we must be on a Cold War footing and have a military and diplomatic budget to, to match that. Yeah. Um, part of my argument, because there are a lot of, of of people on the right who are saying, well, you know, we're getting distracted by Russia and the real problem is China and what are we going to do about this, that, and the other. It seems to me, even if we didn't give a rat's ass about Ukraine, which obviously we do care about Ukraine, the single best way to deter the Chinese from trying to take Taiwan is making the attempt to take Ukraine as ugly and grotesque and painful for the Russians as conceivably possible. Because that will cause, you know, it's like G and those guys, I don't want to go through that or anything like that. And, and it doesn't seem to have occurred quite as much as I would like to, to Biden and crew that 
that's part, that's one of the reasons why this is so vitally important. I also I agree with you about defense spending. I don't really understand why Democrats are so crazy about some of that stuff, or some Democrats, I should say. Um, I mean, there's a rich history of Democrats treating military spending as a jobs program, which it would be, and fine. Um, but uh, it seems to me like I get the climate change arguments. I understand it. I think if Biden wants to wants to gain traction at politically at this moment, he should tell John Kerry to stop speaking publicly. But um, it seems like a no brainer, even if you believe in the in the maximalist interpretations of the, the threat of climate change, which I don't. I believe climate change is real and it's a threat, but I don't believe it's the existential crisis coming out to be. Announcing that we're going to massively amp up domestic fossil fuel production to crush the German, the Russian economy and help our allies get through the disruptions of all of that. And you could, you could say, and we will take the proceeds of this and we will dedicate it to green tech and this, that, and, the, and electrification and the other things to try and buy off some of the complaints. Is such a no-brainer to me politically, in part because high gas prices, even if the other inflationary things get fixed, will drive inflation and feels like inflation. And so just having cheap gas prices for domestic political reasons is hugely important. And I just don't think Biden is capable of doing anything like that, or never mind willing to do anything like that. And I, I have, we'll see what happens tonight. I have real trepidation that he's going to mess up this probably last opportunity to kind of save his presidency or the Democrats' chances for the midterms by listening to the people in his own echo chamber, because he's definitely got one too. Yeah, I mean, he as, much, as well as I think he has done the last two weeks, he's really wrong-footed a lot of stuff. And I, it doesn't seem to me that he probably has the right instincts for the bigger picture, right? You know, Joe Biden's been on the wrong side of every foreign policy decision for five decades. So, so I, I think you're right. I share your skepticism. And by the way, I agree with your idea about the uh, the oil and, and and gas production. You know, release oil from the strategic oil reserve. You know, put relieve some pressure on the energy markets. Um, one more thing, and maybe maybe the most important thing that we should do, and I don't think Biden will do is to return to this idea of national identity and what we stand for. Um, talk like Reagan, right? Talk like Truman, mm -hmm. uh, talk like Eisenhower, talk like them about who America is and what we stand for in the world stage. Biden tried to do that a little bit last year. He had that summit of democracies, but you can't talk that talk and then do what you did in Afghanistan. You just can't. It rings hollow. It sounds cheap. It sounds hypocritical. It sounds like uh, window dressing. So I think Biden needs to talk like that, or some American statesman needs to talk like that. And we need to put our, our money where our mouth is by really uh, maybe funding democracy programs around the world, like Reagan did with the National Endowment for Democracy, um, or George W. Bush did with the Millennium Challenge Corporation, right? We can, we can actually make a difference. We helped de democratize most of Eastern Europe peacefully through things like that. And I, it seems to be an easy win for Biden to say, we're going to do another wave of that kind of investment in global democracy, because that's who we are as a people at home and abroad. We stand for ordered liberty. Uh, and let's, let's be proud of that. Um, let's unify around that at home and let's spread that message abroad. All right, Paul Miller on that note, I think that's probably as good a place to end as, as any. Um, thank you so much for coming on. Hope we'll have you, you'll come back again. And thanks for all your contributions to the dispatch. They've been great. 
th- thank you for the dispatch. It's a voice of sanity in an insane world. Um, I've really appreciated everything that you've done and your colleagues, and uh, I really enjoyed being on the show. So thanks. All right. So uh, Professor Miller has left the studio. It was good talking to him. It's nice to have him on for uh, the first time, and we will almost surely have him back. Um, I'm always looking for somebody that I can um, vent my, um, you know, fairly esoteric views about nationalism versus patriotism to and with. Um, as I said, we're recording this early Tuesday morning, which means that even if our crack podcast crew um, uh, works their their fingers to bloody stumps, most of you will not hear this until uh, after the um, State of the Union, which also means that you will not hear this until after we record uh, Dispatch Live tonight. Just a reminder, uh, we're doing it every Tuesday. Um, most of the cast, you know, uh, is going to be there every Tuesday, but we're going to switch around who hosts and have special, uh, guest stars and all the rest. I am hosting tonight, which means that if you missed it, you missed me hosting it last night or Tuesday night, whenever you're listening to this, uh, but start, you know, put it in your calendars, 8 PM Tuesdays, uh, is when we do it. And it's easy to do, and it's accessible for members, uh, subscribers of the Dispatch. Um, also, uh, by the time you see this or hear this, um, I will have had my first appearance on CNN. Uh, I'm going to do Jake Tapper's show uh, today. And uh, I know me going to CNN has aroused uh, an array, a spectrum of different opinions. Um, uh, many reasonable some less so in my lights, but whatever. That said, I'm really delighted that CNN really has stepped up to the plate uh, during the Ukraine crisis. And it's really, as Michael Brennan Doherty put it recently, being its best self in terms of really leaning into great coverage um, on a global scale. Um, and I, I really hope that they, they learn from this, that this is, this is their comparative advantage because that's... Um, um, I think really preferable to sort of opinion driven news coverage at any of the cable networks. And, uh, other than that, uh, thanks very much for listening. Thanks again to professor Miller. And I will see you next time. No, you want to the podcast. Yeah.